Okay, for the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about resurrection power. What difference the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes in our lives. You know, last week was Easter Sunday. That's the Sunday when Christians historically remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But it's not actually something, the resurrection is not actually something that you can sum up in one day. In fact, the whole Christian life is really a celebration and an anticipation and an appropriation of the resurrection victory of Jesus on our behalf. And actually, the New Testament talks quite a bit about this. This is not a light topic. It's kind of complicated. But I feel like in this time, we need to have a Bible study that's weighty enough to be a counterweight to the challenges we face. And so I want to encourage you as we look at this to put on your thinking cap to turn your brain on, and to ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and open your mind to the power of the resurrection for today. This is not just a sentimental feeling. It's a way of seeing that changes life, changes death, and changes everything in between. Today, we're going to look at a short section from 1 Corinthians 15. If you're familiar with, with the book of Corinthians 1 Corinthians 15 is a whole chapter, 58 verses, that is dedicated to the topic of explaining the resurrection and its implications for our lives. Today, we're just going to take a small portion of that, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 22. And I want to talk about what it's like to live a life that goes all in on the resurrection of Jesus. Paul the Apostle writes this, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to have been false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. This is God's word for God's children this morning. These are strange times that we live in. It seems like everything we thought we could trust, everything we took for granted, everything we thought was stable in our life has been upended, at least for the moment. And we really don't know what the next few weeks or months or years are going to look like. As someone has said, this crisis has forced us to face both the world's chaos, that it's not as ordered as we'd like to be, and our own mortality. The fact that all of us are vulnerable to, to sickness and illness and suffering in ways that are hard for us to face. I think also what's difficult about this, what's challenging about this, is this is a crisis of a sort that 
nobody alive has ever experienced, at least not in America. It's been over a hundred years since America was paralyzed by this kind of a plague. And so we're all looking for hope. Sometimes we look for hope in things that we might do. Some people are committed to positive thinking about what opportunities will this plague produce for us. Others are committed to scrupulous cleaning and taking vitamin supplements, hoping that by that they'll be protected from any ill effects of this plague. A lot of us are looking for hope in a person, whether that be some particularly brilliant scientist who comes up with a solution to this problem or a politician who can come up with a policy that will solve the problems and the challenges that we face. But the reality is this has exposed us and forced us to confront a reality of human life. That even in our modern world, even in our advanced world, even in our prosperous world, there's some problems that we have no solution to. There's some issues we face that we don't know what the answer is. And so we just have to wait. And I believe this is why Jesus matters. This is why the gospel matters. Sometimes as modern people, we can delude ourselves to thinking that we have a technological solution to every problem that might come down the pike. But the reality is all of us during the plague and without the plague, our lives are full of problems and challenges and issues that have no solution apart from the power of God, apart from the resurrection of Jesus. And the glory of the resurrection is it offers a solution that's available to everybody, regardless of the nation they live in, regardless of the race, regardless of their family, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their education. If you understand, if you embrace, if you hear about and accept the hope of the gospel, it provides a solution that transcends all of these things. So that's why we're going to be focusing on this for the next few weeks. And today I just want to do a little introduction about what it's like to bet our lives on the resurrection. First thing I want to show you is that this is a very particular solution to our universal problem. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. This is the unique message of the early church, that God raised Jesus from the dead. This happened in approximately 33 AD, 2000 years ago in Jerusalem, which was at the time a province of the Roman Empire. And if you go back and you read the apostles' teaching, one of the things you realize is that their message was really quite simple. It was simply this, that God took this Jesus who was crucified and brought him to back to life through the resurrection of the dead. Peter puts it this way in Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. That was the original message of the early church. Jesus died, and he rose again, and because of that, everything is different. But the early church wanted to make it clear to everybody but that this wasn't a myth, this wasn't a fantasy, this wasn't just some story. 
This was something that happened in space and time and in history. It was this miracle that sparked a movement and covered the world in one generation and conquered the Roman Empire by the fourth century. And the early church always kept this at the center of their message. And about 100 years after Jesus rose from the dead, they, the, the early church fathers put together the Apostles' Creed that, most of you, that many of you might be familiar with. And in the Apostles' Creed, we read that Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. And it's kind of peculiar to read that and say, why did Pontius Pilate get honorable mention in this creed that is this 120-word summary of the Christian faith? And the reason is simply this. The apostles and the early church fathers wanted to make it clear that when they spoke of the resurrection of the dead, they weren't speaking of some fantasy story. They were talking about something that happened in space and time, and Pontius Pilate was just a a, a low-level government official, but someone who was important enough that his reign and his rule was written down in the records of the Roman his, history books or, or the, the government records, and so people could look him up and verify that this story was something that happened at a certain time and in a certain place. Now, you need to understand the rise of Christianity was built on this, that Jesus died on the cross on the first Good Friday, about 33 AD, and then three days later, he rose again from the dead. Paul says it this way, if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is useless, because all we're preaching is that Jesus rose from the dead. This might seem like a tenuous foundation to start a new movement on, because it's eminently falsifiable. If they had found the body of Jesus after the fact, if they had exhumed him from wherever he had been hidden, they would have been able to put an end to this movement. In fact, that was the rumor that they started initially was that the disciples had made up this story. Or if the disciples had made up this story and they couldn't find the body, but they had found one of the disciples who was willing to share the conspiracy and share the story, that would have put an end to the movement as well. Imagine if Thomas or one of the other disciples had come out later and said, oh yeah, Peter made this story up, he didn't know what to do, and so he's just living in delusion, but this is what really happened. That would have been the end of the ministry as well. But none of those things happened. In fact, one of the challenging promise problems for for historians of civilization to work through and consider is, how do you explain the rise of the Christian movement 2,000 years ago? Particularly, why did in, in the first century this, this group of unskilled, ordinary men, why were they able to come together and, and start this movement that spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire in, in just a matter of, of decades? And when all their only message was this message that Jesus died for their sins and then rose again from the dead. And I think that the best way to explain that, the best way to understand why it was that the church was so successful was because indeed Jesus did die and then rise again. So this 
is the particular solution that Christians around the world and throughout history have pointed to, to the problems of humanity and the problem of death and the problem of our alienation from God and the problem of our sin and our suffering. And the, the, the interesting thing about the gospel, the interesting thing about the message of Jesus is that it's a solution that's not limited to the lucky few, it's a solution that's available to everybody. You think about it, most of the hope that we look to as Christians, most of the things we put our hope in as human beings are things that are limited to a select few. Only a select few who are born with particular talent are going to ever be able to be professional athletes. Only other select few who are born with particular intelligence are ever going to be great scientists. And there's other hopes that we all hope for, but they're only available to the wealthy or they're only available to people who happen to be in America. There's hopes that are only available to those who are young or to those who are beautiful or those, those who are privileged. But the hope of the gospel, the hope that we have because Jesus rose from the dead is specifically a hope that's universally offered to everybody everywhere. That's the hope of the Christian faith. It, it's a hope that's, that's poured out regardless of your economic or social or racial situation, regardless of what nation you live in, regardless of where you're a citizen, because it's a hope for all of humanity. Paul puts it this way, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be raised again. All will be made alive. So what the Bible says is the human problem, the universal human problem that applies to everybody regardless of their background, regardless of their nation, regardless of their education, regardless of their experience, our universal problem goes back to Adam. Now, Adam was the father of us all. It's like we are all part of a big family with one big dysfunctional father, and he's passed on to us moral and spiritual brokenness. He's passed on to us physical brokenness and disability. He's passed on to us addiction and a tendency towards mental illness, and he's doomed all of us to a premature death, just, just because Adam is our first father. And that's the root of the hopelessness that we as humans all endure. It's a generational thing. It's something that we've all inherited from our first father. But in the same way, the hope of the gospel is a universal hope as well. It's a hope that's held out to everyone everywhere. Just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. By birth, we're children of Adam. By faith, we can become brothers of Jesus. By birth, we're born into the death and the corruption that we inherited from Adam. By faith, we can begin to experience the inheritance and the glory and the hope that Jesus won from us, for us, through the victory. See, Jesus is the second Adam, and while the first Adam succumbed to death because of his sin, Jesus, the second Adam, lived the life that we couldn't live, and then conquered death on our behalf when he rose again from the dead. He created a new family, and the prototype of that new family is the church. 
not just our local church, but the church that covers every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, and is, is around the world celebrating the hope of the resurrection today. And so the call of the gospel, the invitation of the gospel is to renounce the legacy of Adam, the legacy of sin, the legacy of death, the legacy of illness, the legacy of hopelessness, and to embrace the new legacy, the legacy of the victory of Christ, the legacy of the righteousness of Christ, the legacy of the sinlessness of Christ, the legacy of the resurrection of Christ, and the legacy of the eternal hope of Christ. And that is universally available to everybody, everywhere, who will put their faith and put their trust in him. So this provincial solution, this thing that happened in 33 AD when Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, and then three days later rose from the dead, actually happened to give you today here in Jersey City, in New Jersey, in North America, in the year 2020, a kind of hope that will last for all eternity. And the question is, what do we do with that hope? Well, what the Bible calls us to, what Paul challenges us to in this story is to bet on this hope, to rearrange our whole lives in light of that hope. And Paul gives his own testimony. He says, if only for this life I have hope in Christ, I have hope in Christ, then I am of all people most to be pitied. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, I've gone all in on the resurrection of Christ. I've bet my whole life on the hope that Jesus died for me and then he rose again from the dead for me. And I've sacrificed everything in the light of this. And in fact, my life makes absolutely no sense apart from this hope that I have because Jesus has risen from the dead. Paul says, if this didn't happen, I've completely wasted my life because I've invested everything in this. And the early Christians were clear that all of their hope, they rearranged their life in light of the resurrection of Christ, not just because he had risen again in history, but because his victory over death was something that they were sharing, and he was their champion, as it were, and he had conquered death not just for himself so that he could live forever, but to give you and me the hope that we might live forever. In another place, in Romans 8, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory we are going to celebrate one day. And so Paul wanted to put all of his chips on the resurrection of Jesus and say to the world and say to himself, if only for this life I have hope in Christ, my life's a pitiful waste, but if I have hope in Christ for all of eternity, then what I want to do is I want to invest everything in this life into that hope. I want to bet everything I've got in this life into that hope. And so that's how the power of the resurrection, the perspective of the resurrection changed all of his choices, his moral choices, his ethical choices, his choices about what he's doing with his life, his choices about how he's going to serve and how he's going to give, what he's going to do with his money, how he's going to treat his relationships, and how he's going to treat other people. Because now you see everybody around you, not just as somebody who is living for this moment or for this life, but somebody who potentially could enjoy hope for all eternity. And so Paul the Apostle gave his life 
to that mission. But he challenges all of us as well to reorient our lives, to recognize that the hope of Jesus and the perspective of Jesus is not just for this life, but in fact, if we understand the power of the resurrection, we'll make sacrifices in this life. We'll deny ourselves in this life for the sake of the resurrection, because instead of just living for this moment, we're living for all of eternity. And what the Bible goes on to say is that the sacrifices we make and the service we offer and the commitments we make in this life will redound to all eternity. In fact, that's what gives meaning to our life. That's what gives hope to our life. That's what gives weight to this life, is that the choices we make, the commitments we make, are going to make an impact for all eternity. Paul concludes with, I think, one of the most encouraging verses. Paul concludes 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with verse 58, where he's contemplating the resurrection, and then he gets back to real life, and he says to the Christians, therefore stand firm and let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And this is a profound thing. He's just spent, spent a whole chapter explaining the power of the resurrection, and then his conclusion is that this means that this life matters more than ever, because what we do in life will echo for eternity. And the sacrifices we make in this life will find their way into eternity. The beauty we create in this life will find its way into eternity. The blessings that we share in this life will find their way into eternity in ways that we can't begin to imagine. And even as we suffer in this life, even as we endure inconvenience and trouble in this life, if we handle these things with hope, one day, like the disciples, we'll be able to look back on the struggles, we'll be able to look back on the losses, look back on the suffering we endured, and we'll see how God orchestrated all of these events and all these struggles, even the grief and loss, to create something beautiful for all of eternity that we will be able to enjoy and that we will be able to celebrate with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have the hope for the hope that we have even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of an outbreak, a hope that we have a Lord and a Savior who entered into sin and death and then conquered sin and death for us. And I pray that you would help us to live in light of this hope, help us to live sacrificial lives, help us to live service-oriented lives, help us to live live faith-filled lives because of what Jesus has done for us. Make the power of the resurrection something real to us today so that we can live with faith and live with hope, even as we're locked into our respective places, even as we wait with some fear and trepidation to see what the outcome will be. I pray particularly for those who might be ailing today, for those who are anxious today, for those who are sick today, that by your grace, by your sovereign spirit, you would give them a taste of this hope, the hope that we have because Jesus conquered death for us. Make this real, we pray in his holy name. Amen.